the movie Karate Kid, we meet Daniel's son, the kid. A high school student who's being harassed by bullies at his new school. He meets Mr. Miyagi, a quiet Japanese custodian at his apartment complex, who happens to be a black belt in karate. Daniel asks Miyagi if he will teach him karate, and Miyagi agrees, but only under two conditions. Daniel must be serious about learning and be willing to do everything Miyagi tells him to do. And Daniel must never question Miyagi's methods or motives. So Daniel's son agrees and shows up the next day very excited, very eager to learn. But to his disappointment, Miyagi hands him a paintbrush and a paint bucket and has him paint a fence with precise instructions. Only moving his hands straight up and straight down. It takes Daniel several days to finish the project, while all the time he's steaming on the inside, wondering what painting a fence has to do with learning karate. And after finishing the paint job, Daniel reports back to Miyagi, who then takes him around to the backyard and a filthy porch. Miyagi tells Daniel to scrub the porch, again describing precisely how he wants Daniel to do it, moving his hands in straight lines parallel to the ground. Daniel scrubs the deck for several days, all the while growing angrier as it seems he's nowhere close to learning about karate. Finally, he finishes the deck, and this time Miyagi takes him to a nearby piece of land where there sits three weather-beaten cars. Miyagi again hands Daniel an old rag and some car wax, explaining how he wants Daniel to do the job. But that's enough from me. Let's take a look at that scene. In martial arts... That's called training. You choose a sensei, a teacher, and devote yourself to learn from him, submit to his leadership. You join his dojo, his house, or his school, a socially connected family. You even proudly wear his colors, his logo on your gi, your robe, and you're unashamed to declare to the world how marvelously, marvelously skilled your sensei is and how you're proud to be one of his followers. In the Bible, it's called discipleship. Again, you willingly choose a sensei, in our case, the savior, to be your master, your teacher. You become part of his dojo, his extended family called the church. You learn from him, identify yourself as being one of his followers. You proudly wear his robe of righteousness, and speak to others of his abilities and marvelous attributes. This morning, we're going to look at discipleship, growing up and maturing in our faith. But there are many misconceptions of what discipleship is. Some think discipleship is a sort of a general overview of everything the church does. Others view discipleship as a special course of study where the participants carry around notebooks and fill in all the blanks. 
Some think discipleship refers to an intense training reserved only for preachers or pastors or deacons. They go to seminary to be discipled. Still others view discipleship as merely a churchy word for the secular word mentoring. Today I want to give our attention and focus to what discipleship really is. But let's take a look at Paul's letter to the Ephesians, chapter 4, verses 11 to 16. He gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. As a result, we are no longer to be children, tossed here and there by waves, and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. It would take a week to analyze everything in those short verses, but it comes down to three basic areas of understanding about what discipleship looks like and what it involves. The first one, discipleship is a mission of love. In Matthew 19, verse 27, we read, Then Peter said to him, Behold, we have left everything and followed you. It's a commitment to follow Jesus and let him teach us. In its basic and initial meaning, it's this. I want to be a disciple of Jesus because I love him. I've committed my life to serving him, and I want to become more and more like him, to reflect Jesus in everything I do, to be a fully devoted follower of Christ. Discipleship in its most basic form is a matter of devotion and identifying with Jesus, being his disciple. Years ago, a sculptor was met in his studio by a guest. The sculptor's work was on display everywhere, life-size statues of deer, of people, of all variety of things. But the sculptor was busy chiseling away at a huge block of stone, when his guest asked him a question. What is that going to be? And the sculptor told him, it's going to be a horse. Wow, the guest replied. How do you know what to do to turn it into a horse? The sculptor answered, well, I just chisel away everything that doesn't look like a horse. And the end result is a horse. That's what Jesus does to us. He chips away at us. He molds us into his image. He uses life experiences, things we learn, tests of our faith, to chip away all those things that don't reflect his image in us. And as we mature in our faith, we grow more and more like him. Disciples in the first century were devoted followers to their person. They left their homes, jobs, even traveled without their families devoting themselves to sitting at the feet of their teacher, 
They soaked up what their teacher taught, shaped and modeled their behavior, attitudes, goals, beliefs to their teachers. Their goal was to extend and multiply the work and mission of their rabbi, their teacher. They did so because they loved him, they believed in him and they loved him. They believed his message to the point of being willing to die for him. In the same way, because we love Jesus, we've chosen to devote ourselves to growing, maturing, so that we will conform to the image. Be like Christ. A mature Christian understands that our goal as Christians is not merely to see Jesus' face in heaven. That's a done deal. That's already been assured. Instead, our goal is to be more and more like Jesus while we're here on earth. And as we let him mold us into his image, we begin to reflect the characteristics he demonstrated in his earthly life. But what were those? The first one, being a servant. Ephesians 4 verse 12 reminds us, for the works of service. Matthew tells us, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, to give his life as a ransom for many. Martin Luther, I think, says it the best way. A religion that gives nothing, costs nothing, and suffers nothing is worth nothing. He has called us to serve, to put others' needs ahead of our own. Another characteristic is being an encourager. Ephesians 4 verse 12 carries on. To the building up of the body of Christ. And John reminds us, in this world you will have tribulation, but take courage. I have already overcome the world. Another characteristic is knowing what's really true. Verse 13 of our Ephesians reading says, Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. And what did Jesus tell us? I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. If you have known me, you have known my Father. Jesus was mature. He was solid. Verse 13 carries on to a, to a mature man, to a mature person, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. Friends, for a child to throw a tantrum, that's one thing. For an adult, something else, isn't it? For a child to be selfish and always demand his own way, that's one thing. But for an adult, it's entirely something else. We expect adults to have matured, not just physically, but emotionally and intellectually, and in the ability to handle responsibility. And if we look at the last part of our scripture for today, as a result, we're no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ. We don't achieve that kind of growth on our own, but through Jesus working within us, growing us, maturing us, we reach that. Discipleship is a mission of love as we seek to be more and more like Jesus, fully devoted to him. The second one, discipleship is a matter of learning. In Luke chapter 11, verse 1, we read these words. 
After he'd finished praying, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray just as John also taught his disciples. Teach us to pray. Spiritual growth, maturity doesn't happen overnight or without any effort. Some believe learning just a little bit will be sufficient. That there's no need to devote ourselves to being serious students. But in order to mature, to grow spiritually as Christians, we commit ourselves to learning and then developing the fundamental skills and basic disciplines necessary for growth. You might be thinking, Lynn, what are those? First one, we need to learn how to pray. We need to learn what prayer is, what it isn't, who we pray to, why and how we pray. We need to know about prayers of praise, petition, intercession, prayers of faith. It's basic fundamental skills. It's the foundation of our faith. And we need to learn it. We need to learn how to study the Bible and memorize scripture. We need to learn how to study it topically, do book studies, character studies, verse-by-verse studies, chapter studies, contextual and application studies. And it's not the same as studying for an exam in school. Because in the end, we're not necessarily going to be quizzed on what we've learned, unless we go on some game show and they throw theology in as a subject. But the reason we study the Bible is to answer the fundamental question. So what? In what ways does this passage of Scripture apply to my life? Or, are, or rather, how can I apply it to my life? We need to learn how to effectively communicate the gospel, to be a witness for Christ and choose to become servants. We need to learn how to face every situation in life with a servant mentality. We need to learn to be seeking to help others instead of living in such a way as to seek our personal interests only. We need to actually get involved in helping people. Jesus taught his disciples, even as late as the night of his betrayal, that being a servant is important. The disciples were gathered together in the upper room, and they were having a debate among themselves about which one of them was the greatest disciple. Jesus walks in, and what does he do? He immediately throws a towel around himself and begins the lowly and dirty task of washing their feet. And when they objected, he explained about true greatness, telling them that whoever wanted to be the greatest in the kingdom needed to be a servant. Friends, we need to learn to be encouragers of others. Part of our role within the church, within the body of Christ, is to lift one another up, to invest ourselves in others' lives and encourage them. We need to learn how to practice responsible stewardship, and I don't need to say anything more on that because we've just spent a month on it. In fact, the reason we have all of our soul groups, our connect groups, our Bible study groups, our home groups, is so we can learn and become effective disciples of Jesus. The added bonus is that we get to enjoy life and encourage better fellowship with one another as we share this thing called life together. The way to become skillful is to do things over and over until we can do them perfectly without thought or effort. Wax on, wax off. Breathe in, breathe out. Wax on, wax off. Breathe in, breathe out. And the way to become able to do great things 
is to do the little things with endless repetition, increasing dexterity and carefulness. The third thing, discipleship is a matter of lifestyle. In John chapter 8, it says, So Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed him, If you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine. Discipleship is a matter of what we do every day, every minute of the day. And being an effective disciple, living out our faith 24-7, requires that we are motivated. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 says, Whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. 2 Corinthians 5 says, And he died for all, so that they, may li- that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. Our motivation of bringing glory to the Lord in all we do is not just to be now and then. It's a lifestyle of commitment. We are to be multipliers. Matthew 28, go therefore and make disciples of every nation. Friends, if we're not multiplying, if we're not bringing others into the kingdom, we're not being true disciples. If we're being faithful to everything he's commanded us to do, we will produce fruit. If we lift him up, live out our faith every day as a lifestyle, then he will do the drawing of people to himself. He will bring people across our paths as we go that need to hear what we know. We ought to be mentors. Titus 2 verse 3 to 5 says, All the women likewise are to encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands, so that the word of God will not be dishonored. And in 1 Peter 5, verse 5, you younger men, likewise, be subject to your elders, and all of you, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another, for God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Like Miyagi, coaching Daniel's son in karate, God's plan for discipleship is simple. Mature believers are meant to mentor, pouring themselves into training, teaching younger believers in the faith. But after all Daniel's lessons, what does he learn? Let's take a look at the second clip. He was learning karate the whole time. The business world has discovered this principle in recent years. Leadership studies have focused their attention here also. It's a simple principle, but a dynamic one. When an older, more experienced leader takes the time to mentor and raise up younger leaders, the younger leader reaches his or her potential much faster. And sometimes the young leader wouldn't have ever even become a leader without a mentor. Are you a disciple of Jesus? Have you committed your life to him? Are you a fully committed, devoted follower of Christ? Or are you trying to be a casual Christian with a so-so commitment to growing in your faith? And friends, frankly, being a casual Christian is as much of an oxymoron as saying you're on a world championship football team, but then revealing you play for the Dallas Cowboys in the USA. The phrase champion and Dallas Cowboys are as incompatible as the idea that you can be a casual disciple of Jesus. Are you submitting yourself to learning and growing? Are you mentoring anyone else? Would you be willing 
to commit yourself to mentoring a younger believer. We need to worship, connect with God. We need to be evangelists reaching out. But we also need to grow up and mature in our faith. Let us pray. Father, thank you that you've called each one of us to you. And Lord, you, you don't want to leave us as we are. You call us to be greater. To become more like Jesus. And Father, as you mold us and chip away things that are not Jesus in us, we ask, Lord, that you would show us how to continually learn and grow and mature. Father, we pray that you show us how to become the best versions of ourselves that we can be. As we reflect Jesus to the world. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus, the greatest example, our Savior, our Lord, our teacher, our God. Amen.